So our sermon text for this evening is actually the entire chapter of Mark 13, and I'm super pumped about that because if you've spent any amount of time with us, you know that we don't usually get that much um, covered in a night. This is week 48 in our series on the book of Mark, and I've mapped out seven more talks, and we will be done. So that's kind of good news, but it's sort of depressing that if that is good news, and that makes it seem like we haven't been effective here, but I know. I know where your hearts are. It's okay. Um, So tonight, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, but I really only want to read uh, the first few verses to set up what's going on. Uh, Part of the reason is when I actually read out loud the entire chapter of Mark 13, it took me about five minutes, and on a night like tonight, I just wasn't it might have been rough. Okay, so here we're just going to throw in uh, the first few verses, and then we'll Um, have some conversation about this. This is Mark 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? This is the word of God for the people of God. So Mark 13 is a long and complicated chapter. One of the commentators that I've been dependent upon throughout our series here named Joel Marcus, he notes that this passage has been subjected to more frequent and detailed exegesis than any other portion of Mark's gospel. In layman's terms, that means that scholars have written a ton on this chapter because it's so confusing, because it raises a lot of issues, because it... um, It seems to be a different picture of Jesus than we have seen previous to. Um, Perhaps the most notable difficulty that we'll look at here tonight is the apocalyptic tone that Jesus takes on in verses 5 through 37. This is the longest teaching of Jesus in the entire book of Mark, and it seems to be focused on the end. He says things like this. This is in verse 5, the beginning of his talk. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of of birth pains. Now, I know a little something about birth pains as a father. Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers in the room. Um, But in an ancient society, this was something that was um, much more pronounced than it is even in, in our society. There was a lot of tension and turmoil that goes into a delivery. But this is an image that's laced throughout the Old Testament. And as we'll see tonight, the way that Jesus is talking, he's dependent upon Old Testament images to get his point across, but here he's saying that this is the beginning of the birth pains. This is the beginning, in a sense, of the end. The question will be, uh, what end is Jesus talking about? But here, the tone that Jesus is taking, it's really different than what we've seen throughout our study. He's not healing anybody. He's not telling parables. He's not... um, He's not being super helpful, if I can say that, and not be deemed a heretic. It's like this enigmatic and esoteric Jesus that's talking in cryptic codes about what's 
going on. In verse 14, he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, another Old Testament phrase from the book of Daniel, Jesus is oftentimes dependent upon Daniel. And for those of you that have been to church, you might think, oh, Daniel, that's sweet. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that type of stuff. Yeah, sort of until the halfway point and Daniel goes crazy and starts talking about all sorts of prophetic visions that he's having. This is the stuff that Jesus is usually tapping into who the son of man is and uh, what's going to take place at the end, the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus is, is talking about this. Now, for an ancient audience, they also would have heard this as something that has happened in, in the past. Um, in 160 BC, there was a family called the Maccabees and there was this uh, revolt basically with a small number of the Jewish population against Antiochus Epiphanes who was setting up foreign altars within the temple. This was a trope that they had seen before where the abomination that causes desolation or sacrilege or something that wasn't good, it was happening. But Jesus is saying, when you see that standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We'll talk about that phrase in a bit. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. When the, the stuff hits the fan, it's not going to be good if you're with child or if your child is dependent upon you. Pray that this event, whatever Jesus is talking about here, will not take place in winter because when you have to flee to the mountains, you'll be in a bad way. Because those days will be of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. This is a weird teaching from Jesus, but it continues. There's another passage in 24 through 27. But in those days, says Jesus, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and he will send his angels. You could also translate that messengers. He's sending them out to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now in this text, uh, what we have is some, some weird, scary stuff. Um, at first glance, this appears to be a very different uh, image of Jesus than what we have seen up to this point. And as I was looking through my student Bible, I got a new Bible about a year or so ago, and I got a student version because it was cheaper than the other version because I wanted to check out this translation. It's the Common English Bible. But in this student uh, kind of study Bible type thing, the author of the notes says, Mark 13 finds Jesus scaring the bejesus out of everyone. And it is sort of the case where Jesus shows up and he starts talking about all this apocalyptic stuff. You better not be pregnant when it's going to happen. You better not go back for your coat. You better, like, it's just kind of freaky, scary stuff. And he's, he's right. I think that for many Christians, and in contrast to the band R.E.M., we do not feel fine when we are talking about or thinking about the end of the world. Now, when I was a kid, I used to pray every night that Jesus would come into my heart. I had this prayer all memorized. I think it was something I got from Sunday school. Mom, I don't know if you remember this or not. We had two prayers. One was this prayer that we would pray each night for different missionaries, and Monday had a certain missionary, and Tuesday was a different missionary. But there was also this prayer, at least that I was doing on my own, that Jesus would, would save me. Um, 
And I felt the need to do that because I was scared that Jesus would stop loving me or that I wouldn't be okay because of the sins that I committed. Like when, I've told you this story, my sister used to be way better at sports than me. I said used to, I'll stand by that. Used to be way better than me at sports. And one of the sports that she was better than me at was baseball. I've come to find out though, I got glasses in the fifth grade and this was pre-fifth grade so I couldn't see, that's my, that's my excuse. But she kept like striking me out and I just put the bat down, went out to the pitcher's mound and just bit her on the shoulder. Like that kind of stuff. I thought that Jesus would just leave me because I was, I was a punk kid. Also one time I got a snowball and I packed it with rocks and I chucked it at her and hit her in the face and that wasn't a good time either. I also remember another time when I... I I, I somehow, I went into her room and I peed in the corner and then I found her diary and wrote, I peed in the corner of your room. <laughs> These stories are not in chronological order. I just want to make that clear. I think I was a bit younger, but old enough to write, I guess. It might have been in a, in a crayon. I don't know if that's something that I've fabricated in my own mind, but I think that that has happened. Um, I think that underlying my fear of Jesus leaving me was probably due to a more fundamental fear of going to hell. I grew up in the church. I went to a private Christian school. It was conservative. I, I remember seeing images of flames and hell and just being so scared that I would end up there. When the gospel was presented to me for a long time, it was, do you want to choose heaven or hell? Jesus was kind of like a, a byproduct to the whole thing. And it's just been of late, probably in the last 10 years or so, this sounds ridiculous, where the gospel has come to mean so much more to me than heaven or hell. It's partnership with Christ to fight for those on the margins and to be an ambassador of justice and to be one who fights for reconciliation and, and allows people to see hope, not to be scared into making a decision that might not be uh, a part of who they are. Now, I mean, I, I do think that some of these stories as a kid, they've, they've been um, foundational for who I've become, but I was also scared of being here when Jesus returns. And I think part of the reason is because all this business about wars and earthquakes and famine and fleeing to the mountains, I mean, that's scary stuff. As a kid, um, I, was, I was scared of, of a lot of things. And I kind of brought that into um, how I processed faith. Now, I think that for many Christians, what happens is we unknowingly import our own pre-understandings uh, that's based on past experiences or past teachings that we've heard, and we read that back into the text. And this is nearly impossible to avoid. I think the best thing that we can do is just to be aware of the stuff that we bring to the table when we're reading the Bible and when we're having conversations with people. But when we hear, for a lot of folks that have spent time in the church, when you hear phrases about earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and famines, we start immediately thinking of the end of days, these like apocalyptic scenes when it's all coming, crashing to the end. Same is true when we hear about the Old Testament images of the sun being darkened or the moon not being lit anymore. And that line in this text about the Son of Man returning on the clouds, we immediately think about Jesus' return at the end. Now, N.T. Wright cautions us in making some of these leaps. 
He says, Christians increasingly need to realize that unless we understand the first century, we will not understand our own times or what sort of people we are called to be. And when we go back to the first century and we try to look at Mark 13 in light of what's going on in the first century Jewish world, I think that we begin to see some things that we've missed and they play an important key for us understanding what this text is actually about. And what I'm gonna argue tonight is that when we take a step back into that first century world, the readings that we come away with and the application that we receive has much more import for us now than thinking about the end of the entire world. So the chapter, it opens this way. We've already looked at this, but I wanna look at it one more time. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones and what magnificent buildings. Now remember, Jesus' disciples were from the north. They were from Galilee. And at least in the book of Mark, this is their first foray into Jerusalem. I don't know if we can go on record and say this was the first time that they were seeing this, this structure, but this was a building unlike any other this story about Jesus leaving the temple, it also brings to culmination Jesus' activity in the temple. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus shows up on the donkey and he has that triumphal entry and people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and Jesus is going in. It's like a coronation. It's like King Jesus riding in on this donkey and being proclaimed king into Jerusalem and into the temple. And this becomes the site for his next few actions over Mark chapter 11 into 13. After he rides the, the donkey in and people have claimed him to be king, it says that he looks around and then he goes back home. The next day he shows up and he uh, famously throws over the tables and he starts to rain down judgment upon the temple for the ways that it was hurting people, for the ways that it was ripping people off, for the ways that it was, um, the way it had become so exclusive to other people. So when Jesus leaves the temple, he's not going to return ever again. And as he's leaving, he pronounces judgment upon it. And he says, not one stone here will be left on another. There's a first century historian named Josephus. Um, and he, he talks about the exterior wall of the temple at this time. He says that the structure was wanting nothing that could astound either mind or eye. There was nothing else that could have been included in this building to make it more beautiful or to demonstrate more grandeur. It was completely awe-inspiring. Marcus notes that some of the stones that remain, and you can see here, this is a picture of the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. It's the only remaining part of the temple um, in Jerusalem. So it's interesting when you think Jesus says not one stone will remain on another. Well, there actually were a few stones remaining on another, and that's not a problem because this is hyperbolic speech where the temple was obviously destroyed, as we'll see. Um, but here, some of these stones that are left, they weigh 50 or more tons. One stone is 40 feet long and weighs about 300 tons. It was massive, this structure. And when you think about building things in that time, it's super impressive to think about how they did that, but Jesus says it's all gonna be destroyed. It's beautiful, it's great. I know that you guys think that this is really awesome, but it's gonna get what's coming to it. 
And this occasions the disciples' question where they say, when, Jesus, will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now, scholars have debated this, um, and they've come to different conclusions, but some, I think rightly so, would identify the majority of this chapter is not a prediction on the end of the world as we think about it, but it's a prediction of the end of the temple. And because we don't really care about the temple or first century Jewish religion, we usually miss this and go to the things that concern us, which is what's going to happen at the end of, of all of these things. But for an ancient audience, this prediction that Jesus makes, it was completely massive. The implications of it were very huge. Uh, what most of this passage is really about is two rival systems that are vying for control in the lives of people, one being the temple and one being Jesus. And what Jesus is trying to teach here is there's going to be a change of government where no longer will it be the temple and its sacrificial system and its priestly orders and all these things that will rule the day. It will actually be me. We see precursors of this too when Jesus dies. Um, same kind of language about the skies being darkened. That's happening when Jesus dies. But remember, um, it's right around that time as well where the, the veil in the temple is ripped into two. Like this is a huge part of Jesus' ministry. And some people would actually say this is the reason why Jesus died is that he is pronouncing judgment upon the temple. What Jesus is saying is the temple and everything associated with it, it's going to be judged because it was intended to be a house of prayer for all nations. But what it has become is a den of thieves or robbers or brigands. What was supposed to symbolize the very presence of God was used instead to make profit, to exclude people, to provide a base of operations for a potentially violent nationalistic regime. So Jesus is predicting the end of the, the temple and its destruction, and he's using language that people would have understood from the Old Testament. He says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, so on and so forth. And in the Old Testament, what words like that were used to, um, to provide an image of was destruction of specific nations like Egypt and Babylon and Edom, at some points of Israel and Judah, but this is strange because what Jesus is doing here is he's using those terms to talk about the judgment upon the temple and upon God's city, the city of David, the place and the site that people, to some degree, have put their faith in. Forty years after Jesus has this conversation about the temple being destroyed, it actually is destroyed by the Roman Empire. It's in 70 AD, and the, the circumstances surrounding that were terrible. It would be one of those moments where if you were pregnant or if you had a small child or if you were trying to, to be okay and if you were in the town, it was going to be difficult. All this scary stuff that Jesus is talking about, earthquake, famine, war, it was spoken to an audience, and this is around maybe 30 AD, it was spoken to an audience who would go through severe persecution. And to them, Jesus is saying, stay alert. 
keep watch, be on your guard, be vigilant, keep doing your work, and be patient in the midst of suffering and trials and persecution. And when it gets close, when you can see the writing on the wall that this place is going to be destroyed, get out. Flee to the mountains. It's interesting, that story in Maccabees, the same thing happens. So Mattathias Maccabees is like helping... um, this revolt to happen, and they end up killing some people that are trying to uh, turn the temple into a site for foreign worship. And when they're done doing that, they leave and they flee to the hills. This is something that people have seen in the past. But Jesus is saying the temple will be destroyed, but God, just like in that period with the Maccabees, he's calling a small remnant of people a small group of believers from all over the earth to become a people who will share the good news of who Jesus is and in so doing, bless the whole world. So here's the deal. This passage is set within its first century context. And stick with me here because we've all been building up to why this is important for us. What we've seen in Mark chapter 13 is two rival systems. The temple and all of its stuff, the way that it's been oppressive to people. And Jesus saying, there's actually a different kingdom that I am bringing into this place. We are bringing heaven to earth. Follow me, not that. It's kind of a crass way of putting it, but it seems to be close to what's happening. This passage has first century importance for a first century audience. And when we turn it into a prophecy just of the end of the world for us, we miss this significance. But this passage has big implications for us because we still live in a world of rival systems, whether they're religious or political or ideological. N.T. Wright says this, and this is going to kind of frame how we wrap this up. He says, where human societies and institutions set themselves up against the gospel and its standards, producing arrogant and dehumanizing structures, deep injustices and radical oppression, there may once more be a place for prophets to denounce and to warn and for God's people to get out and run. One year ago, on Friday, a young man walked into a prayer meeting at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And at a meeting where he was welcomed, he opened fire and killed nine people. There was a Christian author named Austin Channing, and she wrote this poignant reflection about that uh, one year ago. And I think it's worth reading again today, especially in light of uh, what we see on the screen. She says, I wrote on Twitter that every church in America should be talking about this shooting on Sunday. But you know what? My real fear isn't that churches will ignore the shooting. My fear is that churches will underestimate it. I fear that it will alter one Sunday's plans and nothing else. I fear that the words will be reduced to one lone shooter, to one silent moment, to one prayer. I fear that it will change nothing about every Sunday thereafter that it will inspire nothing of lasting significance and that no one will make a declaration to kick racism out of the pews. My real fear is that this moment will slip by just as so many others have, that white churches will refuse to see their own reflection or that they will and simply turn away. On June 12th of this year, one week ago, 
49 people were killed in a gay nightclub in Orlando. This senseless act of violence was also perpetrated due to the shooter's ideological commitments and alliance with ISIS and a deep-seated prejudice towards the LGBTQ community. My fear is that churches will underestimate it, or worse. Some of the responses that I've seen to this event from Christians have been appalling. But we hope that reconciliation, the reconciliation that's available through Jesus will begin to do its work. And we too, as followers of Jesus, must work toward bringing these disparate and disenfranchised peoples who have come to occupy space on the margins of our community, and rightfully so, due to their fear, due to their hurt, due to their skepticism, we work to provide them with the good and healing and restorative promises of Jesus. Now, I don't know if N.T. Wright is talking about these sorts of issues that are plaguing our world, but I imagine that we aren't too far off in thinking that there is a place for prophets to denounce and to warn I'll say this, too, as a word of caution and as a word of awareness. Prophets are not often on the payroll. What I mean is when you begin to work towards these ends of trying to reconcile people back to Jesus, when you try to fight for the other, when you try to be in spaces where you're not expected to be, when you're empowered by the Spirit to do these things, you're going to take shots. You may become an object of scorn or criticism. You may become that scared little boy or little girl who pleads with Jesus not to leave you. He hasn't, and he won't. In verse 32 of this passage, Jesus kind of transitions from this talk of the temple and its destruction, these two rival systems, and what we can take away from that. And he says, but about that day, and it seems as though he's shifting his focus towards actually the end of, of all this stuff, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Really interesting passage there where Jesus is saying, I, I don't know this, but my dad does. To be fair, this passage seems to point us towards the return of Jesus, towards the end, towards the things that are still to come for us. But rather than parse out the details of what this return might look like, Jesus instead provides a lasting image. He tells a parable of a man who goes away and entrusts all of his stuff to his servants. And the message that Jesus gives to the servants in charge of all of his things is this, be on guard be alert, keep watch, stay awake, do your work, and be vigilant. In our society, as Christians, I plead with you, stay awake, be vigilant, do your work. The work of loving people, the work of inviting people into this family, the work of allowing them to see 
a God who loves them and cares for them and wants them to be whole and restored in similar ways that we have been made whole and restored. So often, once we sit in these pews, we begin to isolate ourselves from the people that need this message more than others. And my hope is that when we see Jesus pleading with people, it's not so that we can make a chart and plot out when he's going to show up, but it's so that we can get our hands dirty with the work of the gospel to bring a message of hope and life to people who are dying, to people who are hurt and jaded and skeptical. But what we have the opportunity to provide is restoration. That is the good news of the gospel, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do not forget that transformation that we have been through so that we can share it effectively with others, knowing that Jesus loves them as well.